Now, as I've sat with this story in a, a time of census, a time of plague, a time of abuses of power, David's decision keeps bothering me. Why not just take the three months of running? How could you sit there while 70,000 people died outside Jerusalem? Welcome to Baptist Without an Adjective, a podcast of Word and Way. I'm your host, Word and Way editor and president, Brian Kaler. On this program, we'll hear from Baptists from across the denominational, ethnic, national, and ideological lines that too often divide us. At Word and Way, we've been informing and inspiring Baptists since 1896. Learn more about us at wordandway.org. This episode is sponsored in part by the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. The Cooperative Baptist Fellowship is a network of people and churches working together to spread the hope of Christ. For more than 25 years, CBF has been driven by its mission to serve Christians and churches as they discover and fulfill their God-given mission. Join the fellowship at work in long-term global missions in more than 25 countries. Join them too as they strive to form healthy congregations and support the ministers that serve them. Put your faith to action. Visit cbf.net to get connected. Last week, the 10th Annual State of the Bible Survey was released by the American Bible Society and Barna Group. And it had some troubling findings. They found that in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic, fewer Americans are reading their Bible. 13 million fewer Americans are engaging meaningfully in Scripture this year. They, of course, suggest some reasons. They don't know all of it. Some of it might be more time-related, that people are finding themselves busier, picking up other responsibilities, like taking care of kids who are not at school anymore. But of course, some of it might be that people are struggling to see how faith and God relate in a time like this. And so I decided to do something a little bit different for this week's episode because I think that that's a little bit of alarming. I think that we should be able to find this moment that we find ourselves in is not that unique and that we can find stories in the Bible that help us to think about our faith in a time like this. Think about faith during a census and a plague. And so I'm going to share a sermon that I preached a few weeks ago at First Baptist Church in Columbia, Missouri. And I wasn't sure initially that I would share it here, but after seeing the survey, I just think that perhaps we need to be thinking more about some of these texts in the Bible that we don't often read, that we don't often hear, and how they might relate to us in this very unusual, but not necessarily unprecedented time. So we're going to be taking a look at a story in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. It was read earlier in the service. And so if you want to pause for a moment, maybe read the story there of King David and his census. That might help you get caught up a bit. And then here are some words to help us think about faith in a time like this. So here's my sermon from First Baptist Church, Columbia, Missouri. A census, a deadly plague, an impatient, selfish ruler. That's the story we find in 1 Chronicles 21, and it's a story that's been haunting me lately. It comes near the end of King David's rule, and it's not a flattering picture of him. In fact, it rivals the better-known story of Bathsheba as one of David's two greatest errors recorded in the biblical text. For some reason, the other big sin moment gets more attention. Perhaps it's because we like to focus on personal morality instead of systemic sins and abuses of power. But the Bathsheba story really is about all of that as well. It's not an affair, but rape. She doesn't have the opportunity to say no to a powerful king. And then David again abuses his power to kill Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. 
and an untold number of other fighting men. And then here in 1 Chronicles 21, many years later, we again find David abuses his power. Perhaps feeling unsteady, even weak in his aging body, David gave in to the temptation to trust in chariots instead of in God. So David ordered a census. And like with so many censuses throughout the ages, David didn't really care to count all people. David sought a tally of the number of fighting men in his kingdom. No need to count women, children, elderly men, those physically unable to swing a sword. He may not have even accounted enslaved persons, not even as three-fifths. Perhaps he thought that he could feel great again by just knowing how many fighting warriors he controlled. There doesn't seem to be a practical reason for the census because his military commander argued against it. But the king demanded, so the military counted. The report comes back, finding more than one million fighting men. All other people were left unreported and perhaps even uncounted. And for what purpose? For the pleasure of the king. You see, it's not like a census today. It's not like the census that we're in the middle of in 2020. When we fill out a census form, we could end up with more representative power in Congress, more funds for local projects. So really, you should fill out your census data. But back then, only the centralized power benefited from a census. Here's how Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann described David's census in the book Power, Providence, and Personality. The characterization of the census bespeaks administrative flurry, fast horses, ruthless officers, high-minded, insensitive bureaucrats, government agents charging into obscure, unresponsive villages. The census is a form of bureaucratic terrorism in which the crown invades village and tribal life, the royal intrusion violates village separateness, disrupts community, and seeks to mobilize the resources of the village and tribe for purposes that are indifference to the village and tribe. Censuses serve only royal administration and deployment, not the villages themselves. Now, after this abuse of power, the story unfortunately gets even worse. A prophet named Gad gave David three choices of a punishment. Two of them involved a type of natural disaster. One is a three-year-long famine, and another one is a three-day-long plague. Both would likely lead to lots of death. One of them just gets it over more quickly. But Gad also offered David a more personal punishment, one of David's enemies chasing him for just three months. Now, remember that David already has a lot of experience living on the run, having spent much more time than that fleeing from King Saul, and from his own son, Absalom. But the selfish monarch did not choose to atone for his error by three months of personal inconvenience that would likely result in few or perhaps no deaths. Rather, the impatient ruler chose the three-day plague to get the punishment over quickly. The famine, after all, may have outlived him and therefore tarnished celebrations of him at the time of his death. The end result, the plague killed 70,000 people, but apparently not a single member of the royal family as no one in Jerusalem died from the plague. 
Now, that's the level of total COVID-19 deaths that we saw in the U.S. on May 4th, after more than three months of the first case being diagnosed here. In 1 Chronicles 21, that death toll rises that quickly among a much smaller population in just three days. We are not told how many of the buried bodies came from David's newly counted able-bodied soldiers. And all of this could have been avoided if David hadn't abused his power for personal gain or if he had accepted the punishment on himself. But when a selfish ruler rushes ahead despite warnings, it often seems the ones who really suffer are those who don't officially count. Now, as I've sat with this story in a a time of census, a time of plague, a time of abuses of power, David's decision keeps bothering me. Why not just take the three months of running? How could you sit there while 70,000 people died outside Jerusalem? Was he really able to sleep on that comfortable royal bed while 70,000 people died outside Jerusalem? Was he really able to enjoy the fine foods and wines while 70,000 people died outside Jerusalem? But then I realized that's me. I live in Jerusalem. I live comfortably while others die. I sleep and eat and enjoy life too often unbothered by what's happening to my neighbors outside my Jerusalem. Sir, I find it tragic that half a million people worldwide have died from COVID-19, but it still seems so distant. I wear a mask, I use curbside pickup, I stay home as much as possible, and even if I get it, I'm not considered high risk. I have a couple of friends who have tested positive, but they live in other countries. The plague seems like something that happens somewhere else to someone else. Sure, I find it troubling that we're at the greatest level of unemployment since the Great Depression, but I still have a job, my spouse still has a job, the dinky stimulus check was a nice bonus, but we didn't need it as a lifesaver, which is good because no one could live for three months or whatever on $1,200. The plague seems like something that happens somewhere else to someone else. Sure, I find it angering that several more unarmed black men and women have been killed by police officers or vigilantes, but I don't worry about getting pulled over, followed in a store, shot, or held down for eight minutes and 46 seconds until the breath of God is pushed out of me all because of the color of my skin. The plague seems like something that happens somewhere else to someone else. Sure, I find it upsetting that our nation is built on stolen land with stolen people, that we didn't follow the biblical command to pay reparations when setting people free from slavery, that our very churches were funded and even pastored by slaveholders, that we lynched thousands of people, that we discriminated against millions of people even today through redlining and urban planning, that we continue to ignore structural inequalities without repenting or repairing the damage. But I have wealth and privilege. The plague seems to be something that happens somewhere else to someone else. I may not be David, the one with the most power, the, most, the one most responsible for our societal ails, but I am David adjacent. I live comfortably in Jerusalem. And so as I found myself bothered by this story of a selfish David, it suddenly, it suddenly dawned on me, what did those outside Jerusalem think? 
during this story? We don't know. Their voices aren't included in the text because too often the lives of the privileged, those in our Jerusalems, are the only stories that we think actually count. We know the name of David, but not the names of the 70,000. We should say their names if we could. Maybe we could guess. Maybe some of them share names with others that we should remember. Recent names in the news like Ahmad or Brianna or George or Richard. Older names in the news like Emmett or Martin or Michael or Tamir. Names from here in Columbia, like those lynched, like Hiram and James, or those enslaved by a prominent founding member of this congregation, like Henry and Manley. And so I wonder, what was it like to watch this deadly plague suddenly sweep into your community? Did they know what the narrator of the story tells us about David's sinful abuse of power and selfishness? Probably not, at least at first. I mean, it's a pretty subversive act that we even find this story in First Chronicles in the first place. Someone decided to tell this story to show that the king is morally naked. Perhaps Gad or one of the scribes in the royal court preserved this story as an everlasting indictment on royal power. Perhaps someone in the royal court whispered it to someone else and then to someone else and the story spread before David could cover it up with press releases or denounce it as fake news. But until that information about David's actions leaked, what was it like for those whose neighbors or spouse or children suddenly died in this mysterious plague? I don't know. I'm trying to imagine. But I also recognize that I live in Jerusalem. I'm haunted by the thought that I'm too comfortable to really understand what it's like outside of my safe Jerusalem, whether that means life in another city, another country, or just several blocks down the street. But that's where the words of God come from, from outside Jerusalem. As Brueggemann reminds us, the prophetic imagination involves the word that comes from elsewhere, that word that comes from outside royal power. That's why the true king wasn't born in Jerusalem. The Magi went there expecting to find the king in Jerusalem, but that's only where usurpers sit, like Herod or David. So the Magi had to leave Jerusalem because Jesus wasn't born there. He was lynched in Jerusalem, but he was born in Bethlehem. And if David had just left Jerusalem for three months of personal sacrifice, if he had just left Jerusalem and put his body, his reputation on the line, 70,000 people wouldn't have died. Or if David had left Jerusalem and been able to see God at the beginning of the story, to hear from God at the beginning of the story and sit at the end, 70,000 people wouldn't have died. And so I too must find a way to leave my Jerusalem to cast my life with those considered the least of these. And that's why I'm haunted by this story in 1 Chronicles 21. Because I like being comfortable in Jerusalem. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Baptist Without an Adjective. You can learn more about First Baptist Church in Columbia, Missouri at fbc not slash, but fbc-columbia.org. As always, you'll find us at wardenway.org. And don't forget to check out our sponsoring partner for this week's episode, the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship at cbf.net. 
If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope that you will share it with your friends on Facebook and head over to iTunes or your favorite podcast platform and write a positive review. It really does help more people find the show. You can find easy-to-share links at podcast.wordandway.org. If you'd like to give to support this program, we greatly appreciate it. And all you have to do at wordandway.org is hit the donate button. And whatever you give there will help support the production of this podcast, as well as our website and monthly magazine. And speaking of that magazine, if you're not a subscriber, you are missing out. And all you have to do is try out this special offer I have for you half off the first year, tinyrail.com slash wwoffer. If you have any comments or feedback about the program, you can send those to me at bkaler at wordandway.org. Thanks for listening.